First of all, the concepts that we're going to review first are these, anatomy and physiology. What are anatomy and physiology? We've been talking about that in the first hour, uh, the importance of studying these two uh, disciplines for someone that is pursuing a career in the healthcare area. And the most important thing are highlighted here. Anatomy has to do with the structure of the body parts. Not only that, but also to the relationship to one another. We study the kidney, yes, we study the kidney. The kidney has this size uh, and is located in the retroperitoneal space, it has this shape, it's connected to these other structures. But then the relationship, there are some organs that are right next to the kidney, anterior, posterior, lateral, medial, and that is very important. Because, for instance, if someone has a urinary infection, they will have pain in some particular area of the abdominal region. And we have to know where the kidney is exactly, besides the structure, the size, the shape, and all that. Physiology stands for the function, how it works, how the kidney works. It's very complex. The work of the kidney is very complex. It is a filter. It's a big filter. Um, and not only a filter, it has many other functions, production of hormones, different chemical substances that regulate different functions. For instance, the kidney produces a hormone called EPO or erythropoietin, which is very important for the production of red blood cells, blood cells of our body, so we won't become anemic. So physiology will teach us how that works, how that happens. In anatomy, we have different subdivisions. How we study anatomy, it has different, different areas. One of them is gross or macroscopic. It's about the study of things that we see with our eyes, that are visible, large enough. We're gonna do gross anatomy later in the lab when we see those kidneys on the trays we observe, we see and describe what we see. That is macroscopic anatomy. And it, there are two approaches here, as described here. Regional approach or regional anatomy and systemic anatomy. These are the two important approaches that we use in the healthcare area. Systemic anatomy is what we are going to do here. We're going to study skeletal system, muscular system, reproductive system, nervous system, etc. Regional anatomy is to study the anatomy, to study the anatomy by regions. And what are the regions? The regions are the standard, the limbs, upper limb, lower limb, thorax, abdomen. And what the difference is? Well, regional anatomy studies everything that we find in the upper limb, for instance. Skin, muscles, bones, blood vessels, nerves, everything here in the upper limb. Systemic is by systems. We study the nervous system, we study the nerves, brain, spinal cord, nerves. And nerves 
located everywhere. Nerves in the thorax, nerves in the abdomen, nerves in the upper limb. By systems. It is different than the regional anatomy. And the medical schools, they emphasize more regional anatomy because what we do is go to see a patient. The patient comes and says, I have a problem here. So you need to know what's in here, what's under the skin at that point, what muscle, what nerve, what blood vessel is running here. So that's a little different. But both, both approaches are used, sometimes mixed. So I said we're going to do systemic approach, systemic anatomy. The surface anatomy is another one that, another branch. There studies the anatomy that we see through the skin on the surface of our body, which is important because if you're going to be nurses, you're going to do physical examination, and you have to know, as I was saying at the very beginning, what bone is this? what bone is here, how to find the radial artery for the radial poles. So all that is surface anatomy. You see the patient, you see skin, and you have to know what's under the skin. Microscopic anatomy and developmental anatomy. We're going to do microscopic anatomy, and when we get to the week three or four, I think, we are going to study histology, which is the study of tissues. We're going to see the structures under the microscope. We're going to see the skin. We're going to learn the different types of tissues that we have in our body, the types of cells that we have. That is microscopic anatomy. We need a microscope for that. Developmental anatomy is used to be called embryology, from embryo. It's the study of how the body develops from the very beginning, from the moment of conception, fertilization, and the different stages of development, which is important to know because the anatomy that we see, the heart has that shape, and the different branches have that shape, branches of blood vessels, because the development. The heart starts pumping at the day 18 of life. The day 18, the heart is always already pumping. But it's not the heart like we have in an adult. It's just a tube. But it is already pumping the blood. Then it starts getting folded and forming the chambers and turning um, and giving place to all the connections and blood vessels. So all that shape has an explanation during the development or developmental process. And this perhaps is one of the problems that many people have, the anatomical terminology. It's like learning a new language because we use specific terms. Um, there is a course called medical terminology, which is very useful, especially if you're going to be a nurse, radiologist, ultrasound, physical therapist because you're going to deal with medical records. And first, you have to report something appropriately, using the proper terms. Many names that we will study of muscles, bones, organs, etc., many names derive from Latin and Greek, the roots of the words. And if we study, there's a special way to study all these medical terms, and we are familiar with them, Sometimes we get to know about the function of those parts just by reading the name, just by learning the name. 
Um, one of the advices that someone gave me at some point many years ago is you starting a healthcare career, get a notebook or something to write on and start writing every single new term that you see or learn or you read or listen to the lecture. Start writing down every single day, like 10, 15 words, new words per day. And then look for the meaning of those words and keep the notebook. Just the fact that you're doing that, your brain will be trained in writing it, reading it, and learning the meaning. And the next time you see that term, you'll remember what it means. It's a work that, it's something that's continuous. It continues all the time until you get to the point that you start remembering all the terms. And one of the things is you remember the things that you use every day. So after you're taking the bio A, bio 20A, bio 20B, after two semesters, then you will start studying other courses, doing other things, one year, two years after, and you are going to forget most of the things that you learned here. So don't get surprised. That's natural. But depending on how you study the anatomy, then you'll remember more or less, depending on the approach that you have now. Physiology is the other point. How the organs, how the cells work. And that's the best use of the systemic anatomy. When you study by systems, it's because usually you are emphasizing the physiology. And the re one of the reasons we do systemic anatomy is because this is anatomy and physiology. We do both. And systemic approach helps a lot for that. And most of the physiology, and I mentioned this before, can be traced back to the very, very uh, minimal levels or smallest levels of the cell and even the molecules. Molecular biology, cell biology will help us to understand the physiology of how the things work, how the organs work. And to study physiology, you need chemistry. But you also need some concepts of physics. Physics is not a requirement for taking this course, but chemistry is enough. The physics that we use, I mean, we can review some concepts. But it's basically chemical principles that we study in physiology. And anatomy and physiology, you cannot separate anatomy and physiology. You cannot study just the anatomy without mentioning the physiology or thinking about the physiology. And that's called principle of complementarity. Complementarity of structure and the function. The heart has that shape because of a reason. The heart has four chambers. And when you describe the four chambers of the heart, you have to describe or try to make sense of that structure thinking about the physiology. The heart has valves, which are special things that allow the blood to flow in one direction. When you study the structure of those valves, you have to think about the physiology, how that works in order to understand why those valves have that shape because of the physiology how they work that's called the principle of complementarity of structure and function
This is something that is uh, that we studied in all biology courses. That's one of the ABCs, levels of organization. Always keep this in mind. We start at the very simple level of atoms, molecules, organelles, cell, cellular level. The cells make up tissues, the tissues make up organs, and the organs make up systems. And the whole group of systems is what we have as a human body, organism level to work. And that's why it's important to understand what happens at the cellular level. If a group of cells fails or have a problem, that will be reflected on the malfunction of a tissue, malfunction of an organ, of an organ system, and the whole organism. Then we have a disease. That's how we understand all these levels of organization in terms of anatomy and physiology. We're going to do histology, which is the study of tissues. We're going to study the different types of tissues that we have, which are four basic types of tissues, but each type of tissue have many different subtypes. We do one. When we get there, we'll see. Some other concepts related to the anatomy physiology, especially the physiology, is to recognize the necessary life functions, which are listed here. Main, uh, maintaining boundaries, movement, responsiveness, digestion, metabolism, excretion, reproduction, and growth. All these things are necessary for life to be maintained. We can start developing with everyone. I'm just going to mention some important aspects. Um, but all this, we will be reviewing these concepts in every chapter, especially when we do physiology, to make sense of the function of every single system. Boundaries is about the internal and external environment. The cell has a membrane. The body is covered by skin. We have an internal environment going on. There's a whole universe inside that interacts with the outside, with the external environment. There must be a boundary. Movement, muscles, all types of muscles, cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle, hearts pumping for a lifetime muscles allow movement. Smooth muscle in the digestive system for digestion. And there is a specific type of tissue, muscles, that perform this, are related to this function. Responsiveness has to do with interaction with external environment, but also the internal environment. A stimulus, anything, any change outside or inside can be detected, and then we have a response to that. That's the basic interaction, responsiveness. We are able to respond. Digestion, we get advantage, uh, we take advantage of things that are in the outside environment, external environment, we get them as food and we metabolize those into basic molecules which are used by our body. 
amino acids, different types of carbohydrates. We need them for survival. Digestive system will take care of that. Metabolism, the group of chemical reactions. Everything in our body works on chemical reactions. The liver is an amazing, amazing place where chemical reactions will happen. And that's called metabolism. There are two types, we'll see that. Anabolism and catabolism, which can be understood as anabolism, we make, we produce new things from basic units. Catabolism, we get a piece of cake, carbohydrates, and our digestive system break it down into basic molecules that we will use as energy. So all that is chemical reactions, another characteristic of life. Excretion, we get rid of things that we don't use, products of the metabolism. Kidneys are specialists in removing wastes. If they don't work, we have serious problems. And reproduction and growth. At the cellular level, we replace all the cells of our body all the time, at different rates. And as an organism, we reproduce to continue with the species. Growth and development is seen during the first years of life. We get into an adult, a mature form all the organs and systems. So all these are the necessary life functions, requirements for life, very quickly summarized. Questions comments to this point. Uh, remember on Thursday we're going to have a quiz on this lecture. So. Don't forget to bring your answer sheet, and um, you can use pen or pencil with those answer sheets, and they will be taken at the beginning of the lecture, so be on time. If you miss the quiz, you get zero for that quiz. Remember that. These are the systems that we're going to work uh, in 28. Integumentary system which is a good example of boundaries. Skin is very important to maintain the internal environment. People that have burns, especially very extensive burns that compromise 30%, 40% of the body surface area, they have a mortality rate higher than 90%. Why? Because there's no boundaries. Bacteria can enter easily into the body and they lose fluids, they lose electrolytes, there are no boundaries. So very delicate situation because of this uh, compromise of the skin. And besides, we'll see that there are many other functions of the skin, not only protection, like production of vitamin D. Vitamin D, which is essential for metabolism of calcium for the bones. Skin has to do with that. And many other receptors, nervous receptors, skin receptors for 
detecting changes in the external environment. Yes? Burns, very extensive burns. Uh, burns that compromise 40%, 30% of the body surface area. They have very high rate of mortality because of two things, infection and dehydration, loss of electrolytes and infection. Then we'll get into the skeletal system. We're going to study um, the microscopy of the skeletal system, how the bones look under the microscope, how it works, how the bone is formed. And we're going to study all the bones of our body. Those are going to be your best friends for at least two weeks. You have to learn every single bone of the body. And every single bone has what we call bone markings. Bone markings are specific little things on each bone. I'm going to give you a list of what bone markings you are going to focus and emphasize on. Muscles. Same way. We're going to study the physiology of the muscle at the cellular, molecular level. And then we're going to study every single muscle of the body. There are about 600 muscles in the body. So you're not going to learn 600 muscles in, in two or three weeks. Again, I'm going to give you a list of muscles that you have to emphasize and identify using our models and using our cadavers, which will be like probably 10% of all the muscles of our body. I'm talking about 60 muscles that you have to learn, approximately, maybe more. But you're not going to learn the 600 muscles of our body. Yes? What are you going to do with the list? Soon. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a list of time ahead so you can uh, have ready and uh, prepare and have time to study and review all that. And we'll finish 28 studying the nervous system. Again, nervous system is very complex. We're going to study physiology and the anatomy. We have a lot of uh, human brains, specimens, preserved specimens that we're going to study. We're going to dissect sheep brain to compare the different structures. And uh, also we're going to see the cadavers. From, uh, we're going to see nerves, peripheral nerves. And um, uh, we're going to finish studying the nervous system. And that's more than enough for the 28. That's actually a lot, a lot in terms of anatomy and physiology. Survival needs. Besides all these necessary life functions, we need some things that are basic or they are essential. Like a bunch of nutrients of all types. Oxygen water and we need to keep a body temperature we call normal body temperature well that's the body temperature at which all chemical reactions will happen will be optimized and all this works as a determined atmospheric pressure again the relationship with the external environment if the atmospheric pressure, the pressure of the air around us changes, 
that will have an impact on our body, especially for respiration. It is well known that when we travel to a city which is high altitude place, uh, we start having problems breathing because of the less atmospheric pressure, lower atmospheric pressure. Pressure of air is not the same as at the sea level. That has an impact on the exchange of oxygen in the lungs. Nutrients of all types, as I say, carbohydrates, proteins, fats, oxygen, which is essential for oxidation to convert the nutrients into energy. You're going to see how that happens in the mitochondria. We're going to study all this metabolism and Krebs cycle and uh, get the idea how this works. Minerals, vitamins, fats, proteins, carbohydrates are nutrients which are essential and water, body temperature, and the appropriate atmospheric pressure. Temperature changes, chemical reactions will be affected. If it's higher than 37 degrees Celsius, then chemical reactions will not be optimal. That's the problem with fever. We'll see when we get to immune system, we'll study what is, the, what is the reason of fever and if fever is actually good or bad. It is good. It is good to have fever because the immune system works better if the body temperature is a little higher than normal. But if we go over certain limits, then fever is a problem because it will affect chemical reactions. So here, a comment is that Sometimes when we get see patients in the hospital and with fever, I mean, our main point is not to lower the fever, is to fight the disease. And if someone has a mild fever, well, we can live with that. I mean, that's good for the patient. It's not like my grandmother that got very concerned when we were kids and we had fever and said, we have to lower the fever, we have to lower the fever. We want to see the doctor and say, doctor, please lower the fever. Fever, fever, fever. Well, fever is important, of course. But the point is to fight the disease that is causing that fever. And in the hospital, you see many patients, hospitalized patients with fever. I mean, 37.5, mild fever. And it's okay. As long as they are receiving the treatment, antibiotics or whatever the treatment is, the fever will go away. After 24, 48 hours, the fever will go away. Yeah. Of course, yeah, and it, it is because kids are still in development. The neurons and the nervous system is in development and is very sensitive to changes of the temperature and the consequences may be really, really important. Okay, let's jump into a different topic. Homeostasis. What is homeostasis? Anyone can define quickly, give an, give an idea what homeostasis is?
It, yeah, it has to do with the body temperature at some point, yes. How your body maintains its normal temperature? It's? How your body maintains its normal temperature? How the body maintains the normal temperature. Yes, that's in relation to the temperature, right. The body has a goal, and the body goal is to maintain, in terms of temperature, to maintain a constant body temperature. And another example that we get from homeostasis to have an idea what it is, is the pulse. You take the pulse. What is a normal pulse? There are some people already working in the healthcare area. What is the normal pulse? The rate. Two numbers, lower and higher. 80. 80 is average. We have two numbers, 60 and 100. Lower than 60, it's abnormal. Higher than 100 per minute is abnormal. Average is about 80. If you take your pulse right now, you will find probably 75, 80 per minute, okay? Then, if I announce a quiz which is worth 50% of the grade of the semester in the next five minutes, and you take it very seriously, your pulse will get up to 120. <laughs> That's abnormal, 120, it's over 100. But then I say, well, I was just kidding. And many people will lower their heart rate or pulse to 80 again. So that's an example of homeostasis. Because I'm threatening you. That's a challenge, that's a danger, that's a risk. And you get scared and you react with anxiety. And your body gets out of the normal range, 120. But then you are able to readjust to 80. The abnormal thing will be if I, in this situation, you will go up to 120, and then I announce, oh, that's a joke, I was joking, that's not true, and you stay with 120 the whole day. I was there's something wrong with you, probably, maybe. So that homeostasis, the body maintains, and that's why this table here, this is a list of tests, blood tests. Normal range. For instance, for glucose, this is just one reference from one, uh, uh, one set of data. Normal range, 65 to 125 milligrams per deciliter, which means if you have your glucose level in that range, within that range, that's okay, that's normal. But what if I take your glucose and I find 140? You know how you call the, the, the disease where the glucose is high, higher than normal? That's like diabetes. What's that? Diabetes. Yeah, diabetes. So you have diabetes? Not necessarily. It depends on if it's fasting or not. Exactly. What if during the break you grabbed a piece of chocolate cake? with fudge, yeah. soda, Coca-Cola, then you will get your glucose high. But then if I take the glucose two hours later, you will be in 90, 100, which is normal. So you see homeostasis, the body is maintaining the normal range. Questions? Same thing for all the rest of blood tests. That's why the labs usually express, they don't say one number, they say normal range. And when we interpret the lab results, 
we do it in this way. If I find something abnormal, I don't say, well, uh, yeah, you have diabetes. No, I ask, were you fasting before the test? Did you eat in the last minutes? Or if nothing of that is true, then I will may probably repeat the test. And probably the next time it will be normal. And if not, I repeat it again. For diagnosing diabetes, at least two readings, abnormal readings, are necessary with some time, like every week, measurements of every week, before we say, yeah, you have diabetes. So definition of homeostasis is here. Maintenance of stable, relatively stable internal conditions. And this is the important thing. Despite continuous changes in the environment. We're all the time are these variables changing. Glucose, cholesterol, blood pressure, pulse, temperature. It is changing all the time. As long as they stay within normal ranges, it'll be fine. What is that? That's an alarm from that system, right? I guess. Some people call it a dynamic state of equilibrium because it's always changing, but within a normal range. And who's responsible for that? Well, the whole organism is maintained by all organ systems. This happens in every single system. And we can see examples of homeostasis. Now, the two systems that control the homeostasis mostly are the nervous system and endocrine system. Nervous system is in constant relationship or interaction with internal environment and external environment and changing, adjusting. If I change the temperature of the room, then you will start sweating or start getting chills. Those are responses. Those are attempts of your body to adjust and keep the body temperature. There are three components in this mechanism of how the body controls this. And these mechanisms, only these components are the receptor, the control center, and the effector. Three components of a homeostatic uh, system, or we call them homeostatic loop. Here we see it. Number one, some stimulus produces a change in a variable, which may be pulse, temperature, blood pressure, whichever. <coughs> This is the state of balance. 
But some stimulus here make this change, and we have uh, an imbalance now. Well, that is detected by a receptor, a special cell structure in the body. That receptor will send that information to the control center. This is the input. The control center is usually nervous system. Previous slide was in nervous and endocrine system. The nervous system usually this, maybe other organ. This is called afferent pathway because it is the input. The signal, the message is arriving to the control center. The control center will process that information and send a response, which goes as output to the effector. Effector is group of cells, an organ that have specific functions that will send a response to change that variable and bring it back to balance. That's, those are the components. The receptor, when the change happens here, the receptor detects it, sends the information to the control center. Control center will process that information and send a response to the effector, which will bring that variable back to normal or normal range. And that's how these three components work in the maintenance of the homeostasis. And as I said, we can find many examples of homeostasis in, uh, in systems. These are the descriptions, receptor, which is a sensor, also described as a sensor, response to the stimuli. Control center process that information, determines a set point. What is a set point? The set point is an average, is the normal range. Like in the polls, we said the normal range is between 60 and 100. Average is 80, that's a set point. Usually the polls varies around 80. It goes higher and lower, higher and lower, but always around that set point of 80. And the control center determines some response based on the stimulus that they receive. The effector gets the output from the control center and sends a response that will bring the variable back to normal. Now, there are two things here. We have to recognize two types of response. One of them is called negative feedback, and the other one is called positive feedback. Negative feedback is when the response is opposed to the initial stimulus. Positive feedback when the response enhances the initial stimulus. We're going to see examples. Negative feedback is found mostly in most mechanisms, most organ systems. And, as I said, reduces or shuts the original stimulus. It's opposed, in opposite direction. The variable changes in opposite direction, like in the case of the pulse, glucose, the glucose, the glucose goes higher than normal, 
then mechanisms make make it go back to normal. That is a negative feedback because the response is oppos opposed to the initial stimulus. We have two examples here, body temperature and the blood glucose. Insulin is the hormone that makes this work. And these are two examples of negative feedback. Yes? For example, if someone has high sugar, can you apply some physical exercise, like body temperature to your body, that will lower the, blood, the, the sugar? Is that how it, how it works? If someone has high blood, uh, like, high... Yeah, somebody like, like you said, ate a cake, uh -huh. a piece of cake, and the sugar goes out. Mm -hmm. So what about the, after eating that piece of cake, the person decides to go for a running, mm -hmm. and then applies that energy in the body, so that energy, uh, that body temperature will, will, will impact to that sugar level at some point? Not exactly the body temperature, but the fact that you are exercising, you're going to use that glucose that you consumed in excess at that moment. Body temperature will increase when you exercise, but by other mechanisms, because you are burning that glucose, burning that fuel that you ate, and burning it to exercise, and that implies chemical reactions. And those chemical reactions will release energy that will make the body temperature increase. Right. There are two different loops going on there. The one that does not affect the other one. Not necessarily. Yeah. This is the diagram for the body temperature where we see and identify receptors like the temperature receptors on the skin. Control center is in the brain, nervous system. And the effectors are the sweat glands. We sweat in order to regulate the temperature, to lose temperature, and go back to balance. But in the case of cold, when the temperature falls, then start getting chills, start shivering. And with that, we try to increase the body temperature of the body. So the homeostasis, this is an example of negative feedback, negative feedback. This one works for blood sugar. Negative feedback, again. See all the process here in detail. Hyperglycemia, which is the term for high blood sugar, or high glucose, uh, high levels of glucose in the blood. This hyperglycemia is detected by cells in the pancreas, which are the sensors receptors but at the same time, they are the control center. They decide to produce insulin, that hormone which is released to the blood and is going to make this. Liver and muscle cells will take up glucose, which is an excess from the blood. That, those are the effectors. That's the response. And if the glucose is getting into these cells, is getting lower in the blood, so the blood glucose is reduced. And if this happens, the hyperglycemia will be controlled. That's another example of negative feedback. Question. 
hyperglycemia is the term for high levels of glucose in the blood. Uh, the term, and this is a good example to um, study the term, medical terminology, what you, what you do in medical terminology is study the roots of the words. And we can divide this in three components. The component glyc comes from glucose. Emia comes from hemos, which means blood. Hyper means high. So by knowing the components of the word, you can tell about the meaning of the word. This is blood, glucose, blood glucose, hyper is high. Hyperglycemia, high glucose in the blood. And low glucose in the blood, how would that be? Hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia. The other mechanism of the response is positive feedback. Positive feedback enhances your original stimulus. Enhances the original stimulus. And sometimes there are chain reactions, cascade reactions to amplify some responses. It's not common in the body. It happens in only some processes like when we bleed and the blood coagulates to stop the bleeding, like what happens when we withdraw blood, we make a hole in the vein, but then these cells called platelets will come and make a plug to stop the bleeding. That is a process of response of positive feedback. Or during labor, during labor there's a hormone called oxytocin that will enhance the contractions and that's how the labor keeps going and going and going increasing the rate of contraction the frequency and the strength of contractions until birth those are two examples of positive feedback but the process of enhancement is not eternal there's a point at which it stops birth happens no more contractions of the uterus when the bleeding stops because of the plug no more platelets are formed and uh, that's why it's infrequent events. It's not happening all the time. Some examples are listed here. This is the one for platelets, positive feedback. When we have a hole or injury in the blood vessel, the platelets, which are cells of the blood, they will release chemicals and get sticky, will stick to each other. And they will form a plug, as we see here. But the chemicals that the platelets release, they have an effect. They will attract more platelets. And those more platelets that will be attracted to the place of the injury will participate in the plug. But at the same time, it will release more chemicals, which attract more platelets. And even more chemicals and more places, you know, this is an amplification other response. But it stops when the plug is formed, bleeding stops, and no more platelets are called. But it's, uh, it's an example of positive feedback. And after all this, what we should keep in mind is all these homeostasis concepts are important because 
disease is understood in terms of homeostasis problems. Examples that we were given. If someone has a high uh, accelerated heart rate and pulse because of some reason and it stays that way. Or someone has high glucose levels and it stays in that way. Well, that's a disease. That's a problem. It's not controlling the homeostasis. It's not working well. And that means a disease. Diabetes, maybe. Maybe tachycardia, arrhythmia, a problem of the heart. Even infections can be explained on the terms of homeostasis. Now, these homeostatic mechanisms, they work all the time, but at some point, especially when we get older, as part of the aging process, these mechanisms may not work so efficiently. You can run and your heart will respond with certain heart rate if you are 25 years old, but it's not the same if you do the same if you are 60 years old. Your homeostatic mechanisms do not work in the same way. They have to be different. And your exercise has to be adjusted for that reason. If not, you may have a heart attack. Okay. Questions, comments? Let's have a break. Ten minutes to go with the next part, the last part of the class today.